You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the Cardiac Kids Developmental Follow-Up Program. I'm joined by Dr. Elisa Burnham, Dr. Kate Wallace, and Dr. Lila Hampton. So thank you so much all for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. So this may sound like a silly question because we're talking about kids with congenital heart disease. So why are we even worried about their development and talking about their brains? It's really not a silly question at all. Um, Over the past few decades, children born with complex congenital heart defects are living longer than they used to. Along with increased survival rates has come the realization that these children face more than just challenges associated with managing their heart defect. There's now research to show that about 50% of children with a congenital heart defect requiring either surgical or catheter intervention in the first year of life have some level of neurodevelopmental disability. In fact, both the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that children with complex congenital heart disease have routine neurodevelopmental assessments. In our um, program, we have a multidisciplinary uh, program, and our mission is to provide developmental assessments and support for children with congenital heart disease. We have a team consisting of myself, um, a pediatrician, we have a neuropsychologist, um, we have a developmental pediatrician, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. We usually see the children for their first visit when they're about three months of age and continue to monitor them periodically thereafter. If we identify a developmental or learning problem, we work with the family to get help, such as early intervention or other therapy services. We know that developmental problems don't always show up right away, so even if a child's doing well early on, we continue to follow them. Once a child's approaching school age, we perform a school readiness assessment to make sure they're ready to enter school and to help the family get any necessary support in place before school starts. That's awesome. Sounds like a really great team (laughs) model that you guys have. So are kids with congenital heart disease at risk for neurocognitive abnormalities due to the time they spend on cardiopulmonary bypass during surgery, or is it the time they spend being cyanotic from their congenital heart disease, or is it genetic or something else that we don't know about? It's actually, it's a really great question, um, and we don't completely know the answer. Um, However, it really is multifactorial, as you suggest. Um, We do know that brains of children with congenital heart defects have abnormalities that are present even before they're born. Studies have shown that their brains have delayed maturation, they can have white matter injury, and other structural brain abnormalities. Both preoperatively and postoperatively, the brains of these children are vulnerable to new white matter injury, stroke, hemorrhage, and seizures. Also, they, um, some of the children undergo repeated operations. They have, can have multiple hospital stays. They can struggle with feeding and growth. Um, and the families have to deal with a lot of stress and anxiety, which then also impacts the child. Uh, one big question has been if operative management, such as the type of bypass technique, can influence neurodevelopmental outcome. Um, there have been a number of studies. One example was the Boston Circulatory Arrest Study, and they looked at kids with transposition of the great arteries who were having an arterial switch operation. 
they um, randomized two groups. One um, had surgery with deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, and the other had low-flow cerebral perfusion, um, cardiopulmonary bypass. And they studied uh, developmental and neurological outcomes in these kids through 16 years of age. Early on, there were some differences between the two groups, but by 16 years old, there was no significant difference. Hmm. However, um, importantly, both groups of patients showed um, increased need for support in school. There were problems with executive function, function and behavioral problems, and a third had brain abnormalities on MRI. Um, also, these patients were four times more likely to be taking psychotropic medications compared to cardiovascular medications. Mm-hmm. So um, even though the operative uh, management didn't affect them, these kids still had problems at 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other factors that can influence their neurodevelopmental outcome. We know that there's a lot of genetic syndromes associated with congenital heart defects. Um, in two patients with the same heart defect, a child with a genetic syndrome is more likely to have a neurodevelopmental impairment. Also, the type of cardiac defect can have an outcome uh, with patients having more complex defects having tending to have worse outcomes. That's a lot of great information about kind of the long term. If we go back to infancy right out of surgery, a lot of these infants in the ICU, while they're recovering, are spending a lot of time laying flat on their backs. And I know that I've had patients who have been told should observe sternal precautions. And so how do parents and pediatricians engage these infants developmentally while they're still healing in this early post-operative period? Yeah, this is um, really important and something that we um, also deal with when we see the kids for their first visit. So the, um, the sternal precautions here at CHOP, they're in place for six to eight weeks after the incision is closed. Um, some centers have um, different policies, but um, that's what we follow at CHOP. And that means um, with sternal precautions that you can't pick the child up under their arms. And then also if they're lying down in a supine position, you can't pull them up from sitting, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, into sitting um, by using their arms. Instead, you want to um, pull them up from their shoulders. Now. Um, that's in contrast to tummy time. So the tummy time restriction is two weeks after surgery. Mm-hmm. So for two weeks, they can't be placed um, on their tummy, but they can be held up against a parent's chest. Okay. So um, what we suggest, um, um, we talk go over this with families a lot, is that they, after those two weeks are up, that they start doing tummy time on a parent's chest and then have the parent just slowly lean back so that they um, go into more of that um, prone position. Um, and we tell them to start slowly. And this can be really scary for a lot of parents. They're often worried that their child will be in pain or that they can do something to the incision. So we really reassure them that it won't hurt um, and that they can even just do a few minutes at a time and just work up until the baby tolerates it more and more. Right. It's good that there's some strategies because I think some parents are afraid and then they just leave them laying flat and we know that's not great for their development either. And most of the time these surgeries are happening happening at such an important period in development. Exactly. So what types of support services should pediatricians get involved in managing these infants and young children? So um, early intervention is a really great resource for many of these children. Um, When they're young, a lot of our kids benefit from PT and or OT. Um, Motor delays are really common. Um, And sometimes it's useful to refer a patient for a course of outpatient therapy too, um, especially if there's a specific issue, um, like torticollis is something that's not uncommon. So often we'll Mm -hmm. refer the patient for a course of outpatient patient therapy, especially while they're waiting uh, for early intervention services to be put in place. 
Um, the other thing is that these children have a lot of feeding problems and growth problems. So um, both nutrition and feeding teams are really useful. Um, and then um, the other thing we always recommend is that these kids have a follow-up audiology evaluation after mm -hmm. they turn one. We know that children who've had cardiac surgery in the first six months are at risk for uh, higher risk for hearing loss. Um, so we recommend that they get repeat audiology screening even if that newborn screen was normal. Mm -hmm. Great. That's good for us to keep on our radar. So I'm going to um, ask Dr. Lila Hampton, we're going to fast forward a little bit towards the school-age child. So what types of neurobehavioral and school-related deficits are children with moderate to severe forms of congenital heart disease at risk for? Um, so yeah, so that's a good question. Oftentimes it can be um, somewhat subtle in the beginning and mm -hmm. kind of be uh, cumulative over time. We talk about children growing into their deficits, mm -hmm. um, but there is somewhat of a pattern that they found through the literature, um, including difficulties with attention, difficulties with visual, spatial, and fine motor functioning, and um, in terms of like academic difficulties, more so you know read, reading comprehension and math problem solving. So you really start to see it over time, particularly particularly around like third grade, mm -hmm. um, where they're sort of have to start reading to learn and get and it gets more complex. And so um, oftentimes that's when you you know hear parents talking about their kids having more and more difficulties at school as as task demands increase and you know academic expectations increase. Mm -hmm. Um, neurobehaviorally, you do see more of the internalizing, so more anxiety, mm -hmm. um, and you know it all kind of depends too on their medical course, right. um, that adjustment in and out of the hospital if they're having to go back in for hospitalization. Um, so, uh, but typically you see more of the the um, anxiety and um, attention difficulties mm -hmm. in particular. So children with congenital heart disease have increased have an increased risk of ADHD as much as three to four times that of the general population. We know that ADHD is often treated with a combination of behavioral therapy and medication, but are there special considerations or concerns about the use of ADHD medications in children with congenital heart disease? And for that, I'm going to turn to Dr. Kate Wallace. It's a great question, and I know that a lot of people are really hesitant to treat ADHD in this population because of concerns about what their uh, complex congenital heart disease may mean in terms of medication side effects. Um, however, as Dr. Hampton was saying, this is can be a really big morbidity for these families mm -hmm. um, and for these kids that they, they really can fall behind in school. It can often lead to uh, untreated ADHD can lead to a lot of self-esteem issues and learning problems. Um, and so we really try to treat them when it's indicated. We do know that there are mild changes in heart rate and blood pressure that we have to be sensitive to. Um, and both stimulants and non-stimulant medications like atomoxetine or stratera can increase heart rate and blood pressure very slightly. Mm -hmm. um, only about three to 10 beats per minute or about two to eight millimeters of mercury for blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and often that's not really clinically significant. Right. Um, there have been no cases of death that have been attributed to the use of ADHD medications in individuals with congenital heart disease. So that's important to reassure um, our colleagues and also families. Um, and a lot of studies have found that the benefits really do outweigh the risks. 
Um, that being said, we do work very closely with our cardiologists to make sure there's no additional risk factors that we don't foresee, um, such as a pre-existing uh, dysrhythmia or something mm-hmm. that we may just want to be more sensitive to. Um, often we continue to treat with medications, but we may consider additional monitoring, either with an EKG or a Holter monitor, just to make sure um, there aren't a any additional risk factors in that particular patient. The other big thing that comes up is that we know that stimulants can cause appetite suppression. And in this population where growth and weight gain and feeding are already problematic often, um, we just have to be very sensitive to monitoring for weight gain, making sure families are trying to supplement their children, make sure that when the stimulant is not in their system that the child's getting adequate nutrition Mm -hmm. to maintain uh, growth along their own curves, which again may be lower than um, otherwise expected for that child because of their pre-existing heart disease. but other, other than that, the side effects that we expect in this population are really what we see in a lot of other kids as well. So things like if there's a pre-existing tick disorder or a risk of developing ticks, these, these patients may develop that as well. Um, we do have some patients who have that more irritable sort of complex, and it just, tail- it just means that we have to tailor our medication uh, regimen a little bit more carefully for them. So it sounds like once we sort of get cardiology's approval, making sure there's not something like a dysrhythmia, that we can manage them sort of how we manage any other child on ADHD medication in terms of tracking their blood pressures and weights and looking for sleep disturbances and and things like that. Absolutely. Um, And and we encourage uh, people to do that. This can be a big source of morbidity for these families Mm -hmm. and for these kids. So... um, And we're really lucky here that our cardiology uh, colleagues are very sensitive to this and are really helpful in helping us to tailor these regimens and and give approval. They recognize the need is there. Mm -hmm. Great. So is there an increased rate of autism spectrum disorders in children with congenital heart disease as well? Yeah, interestingly, a lot of kids with congenital heart disease, um, as Dr. Hampton was alluding to, may just have sort of different um, temperamental and developmental profiles. Mm -hmm. And often that can include deficits in things like social communication and social cognition. So thinking about how children will learn to interact with others in a social group. Mm -hmm. So sort of even at a sort of subclinical, subthreshold level, there are some difficulties with the social awareness and and social skills of these kids. Um, We do know that the rate also of autism spectrum disorder meeting full DSM-5 criteria for autism is also higher. Um, And we're really trying to do more work to try to understand the rate of uh, positive autism spectrum disorder diagnoses in this population. Mm -hmm. However, it is thought to be higher. And we do see many children who... um, come through clinic uh, here in the CKDP program um, who end up with a diagnosis of autism, sometimes because I believe, I imagine that there's a bit of a focus on other sorts of um, medical and, uh, and developmental skills sometimes they are overlooked for having autism. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's really important to be attuned to it and to right. think about it at a young age. Mm-hmm. Well, like um, I think everyone's mentioned so far, their young age, they can be very medicalized and in and out of the hospital. And it can be that the focus is sometimes more on their cardiac lesion 
more acutely and then later on realizing that their development isn't where it should be. Exactly. Um, And so we're, again, really lucky here that the cardiologists that we work with are very attuned to thinking about the developmental outcomes of of the patients that they see. And so um, we'll make referrals to this clinic, even if they weren't seen at a young age here. um, We do get referrals for kids who are older Mm -hmm. because some of these things present at an older age as well. So if pediatricians are concerned about the neurobehavioral school-related um, deficits that they're noticing, where should they refer these school-age children for help? That's a great question. I think that um, you know, if parents bring up particularly academic difficulties and um, or trouble with in the classroom, um, starting with encouraging them to uh, write their child study team for their in their school district and mm-hmm. requesting for an IEP mm-hmm. evaluation is a great start because, um, and I, I say request it in writing because mm-hmm. that way they can start sort of that documentation right. um, because there are time limits for how quickly that um, the school district can respond and start the process of the evaluation. Right. Um, and so really the, you know, the earlier the better for that in terms of getting services for, mm-hmm. um, for their child. Which in Philadelphia is 60 days 60 from days, the yeah. time you sign the permission to evaluate form. Right, right. So yeah, so there's that step ahead where they have to, you know, initially mm-hmm. request that. Right. And so I think that starting with that is a, you know, is a really good idea. Um, like I was saying before, I think oftentimes sometimes it can be a little bit more subtle, some of the difficulties that they may see in their child. And having someone to evaluate sort of comprehensively, um, looking at things like academics, but also um, attention, um, what's called executive functioning. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, higher order problem solving, behavior regulation. Um, so having someone familiar with the um, profile that can be can occur in children with uh, congenital heart disease, mm-hmm. um, so a neuropsychology evaluation, mm-hmm. um, that is also, I think, very helpful for parents to learn about and for um, them to be referred to. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm partial to that as well. <laughs> and then in terms of, you know, if it's behaviorally based, um, you know, I think wraparound services are certainly good for um, those who qualify for them where they can have some behavioral support in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, also, again, sort of having a, um, a psychologist that's familiar with um, not just children with congenital heart disease, but also, you know, any child with chronic illness mm-hmm. or, um, you know, adjustment issues related to that. So having a pediatric psychologist, if possible, is mm-hmm. also a really great resource both for, you know, I mean, sort of an ongoing, on an ongoing basis for the parents as well, Mm -hmm. as they sort of navigate the different behavioral challenges that might occur or having to advocate um, for their, for their children. Mm -hmm. Great. So as you've mentioned before, raising children with congenital heart disease and or neurocognitive delays can be challenging. So how can we help support the parents of these patients? So I think that having the um, having things like our multidisciplinary clinic, as well as ongoing um, work with um, with psychology and with with providers, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there are support groups both within within CHOP and within the community um, that parents can can be directed towards. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's things like Little Mended Hearts or Mended Little Hearts and the Pennsylvania Congenital Heart Disease. Um, program, and so um, you know, referring them to those those resources. There's also Facebook groups that um, parents often find on you know mm-hmm. by speaking with other other parents of children with congenital heart disease that mm-hmm. they can um, 
that they can join as well. And so I think having that support network as well as the discussion at, you know, during their child's visit of Mm -hmm. parental mental health and parental um, stress Mm -hmm. is important. Great. In the few years since you've started the Cardiac Kids Developmental Follow-Up Program, what have been some of the benefits that you've seen to this community of patients? I think having a setting where, you know, I can talk to occupational and physical therapy um, or we can, you know, discuss concerns, feeding concerns with speech language therapy, having that sort of ability to talk sort of real time with each other is really Mm -hmm. helpful in terms of providing that care in the moment for the family or the, you know, the recommendations to provide um, interventions once they leave their visit. And I'll just add, as a developmental behavioral pediatrician, uh, seeing school-age children, their presentation can be pretty complex and delineating uh, whether there's ADHD and or a learning disability and trying to figure out the role of those and how we can help a family to advocate for their children within the school system. Dr. Hampton's contribution by doing neuropsychological testing Mm -hmm. on these children is invaluable. Um, And so really having that comprehensive approach, trying to look at all of the different uh, conditions and difficulties that some of these kids may face, as well as capitalizing on their strengths uh, when when we we do the testing um, is really, really helpful. So it's been a great experience being a part of the program and getting to collaborate in that way. And, and I'll just add that it's been really rewarding to work with these families who, like Dr. Hampton said, are so invested and to really have the time to focus on the whole family and, um, and then as a, as a child um, and not, um, you know, so focused on just their heart or just their medicines, but really just trying to promote and optimize their development and really just um, maximize their potential because um, they can, you know, really really do well and really we really want to support that. Great. And as you all mentioned, we have amazing uh, cardiologists here and I know there's great cardiologists in the community, but they don't have the time or resources necessarily, even though they're in tune to these differences, to do the things that you're all able to do. So it's great to have a program that sort of brings that all together and as you said, looks at the whole child. So thanks so much for all that you do for our kids with congenital heart disease and uh, for supporting us at CHOP. And we will link to your program on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank Thank you. Thank Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.